Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. Good morning, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics and trash from a feminist perspective. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And I'm Katie Winton. And Agenda is um, broadcast on Gadigal land and we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of this land we're broadcasting on and pay our respects to their elders and ancestors. We also acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge sharing and storytelling for many communities. And we'd like to honour that history and what we do here at Agenda on FBI Radio. And on today's show, we're looking forward to talking to C.N. Lester, a British classically trained mezzo, as well as an alternative singer-songwriter. So uh, C.N. Lester was rated 41st on the Independent on Sunday's 2013 Pink List, which acknowledged their co-founding of the Queer Youth Network and their founding of the UK's first straight gay alliance. Their autobiographical book, Trans Like Me, A Journey for uh, a Journey for All of Us, explores what it means to be transgender. So C.N. Lester is speaking on the Trans Like Me panel at All About Women Festival tomorrow, uh, which features writers and activists talking about the intersection of gender, politics and identity seeking to redress feminism's tendency to be transphobic. They will all examine how we build a movement that includes all women, genderqueer and non-binary folk. And in the spirit of Mardi Gras tonight, we're going to be investigating the queer history of ancient Egypt. And also in Kardashian news, Kim and Kanye are to appear on Family Feud. More from our Kardashian correspondent, Isabel, on that later. I feel like that was the Kardashian news, so... (laughs) That was it. Sorry, gave it away. No, but I feel like you want to talk about it in more depth, right? I feel like I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll have that moment. Uh, what are you doing for Mardi Gras? Text us on 0409 945 945 if you missed out on share tickets. Tell us what else you might be up to. Uh, this is Neighbourhood by ModCon. You're listening to Agenda on FBI.
You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and according to a recent article in our favourite media platform, Them, ancient Egypt was totally queer. Them is the new um, Teen Vogue, right? Or no. Yeah, so it was um, it launched last year by Condé Nast, and it's a kind of next-gen community platform, which has been posting really interesting and relevant content. Uh, in one of their most recent articles, Hugh Ryan wrote that in 1964, archaeologists in Egypt opened the tomb of Nyanknum and Nyamho. Oh, I practiced this, and I was like, <laughs> fully had it, and I was like, I'm and gonna nail this. And you didn't even give it to me because no, you knew I couldn't I was do like, it. I could do it anyway. Two men who lived and died somewhere around uh, the year 2380 BCE. Inside, they would discover that what might be the oldest evidence of queer lives in existence. So, in spite of the overwhelming assumption. Um, that homosexuality never existed uh, before Sodom and Gomorrah. Historic and literary evidence like this tomb suggests otherwise. Homosexuality was not alien to the first civilization known to humanity, but more importantly, it was it was considered it wasn't considered deviant, uh, and so it came with its own cultural products, myths, and literature. Yeah, so the tomb uh, is really interesting because they the two men were depicted in a way that heterosexual couples were commonly depicted in this kind of memorial and like tomb art. So they're shown kissing nose to nose and holding hands and standing very close together, almost like in a cuddle. Mm-hmm. Um, and their wives and children are also depicted in the tombs, um, though curiously there are no paintings of either man embracing or kissing their wife. Yeah, so um, archaeologists, in their infinite wisdom, decided that the two boys were probably brothers or very good friends or conjoined twins. Yeah, wow. Because that makes so much sense. (laughs) I mean, I feel like even if they were really good friends, I mean, like... You could entertain the possibility that maybe they were more than friends. (laughs) Oh, no, totally. But even if they were really good friends, it's still a kind of nice, positive thing for like two men to be (laughs) kissing as nice (laughs) nice friends. Um, So Jacqueline Lacey, who specialises in African ethnology at the American Museum of Natural History, is unsurprised about these interpretations. And she talks about the long history within the field of archaeology, which is a discipline that has like reproduced itself through the colonialist white male lens. Um, So she says it's a way of explaining away things that appear queer. What I really love about this is that the two of them worked as chief ma- manicurists to the pharaoh in the fifth dynasty of the Old Kingdom, which was a really prestigious position in ancient Egypt. And I think maybe I might be reading too much into it, but I really <laughs> like the idea that they were this kind of ancient Egyptian power couple. That were manicurists. Manicurists yeah, power couple. Yeah, that's really lovely. Yeah. So they were mixing it like... High society. Yeah. So um, after the break, we're going to lower the tone a little and bring you the trashy news from the week. It's got everything. Kim and Kanye, Barbara Streisand, Amanda. It's got it all. Um, (laughs) So this is Totally Mild with more from their album that just came out called Her. Totally Mild supported Perfume Genius last night at the Factory Theatre and I was there sitting in the courtyard playing Uno and I totally missed the whole of Totally Mild set. Yeah, it was really um, upsetting. Anyway, we're going to listen to more right now and stick around for more uh, hot gossip right after this.
You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. And in case you missed it, uh, Kanye West is reportedly going to be featured on an upcoming episode of Celebrity Family Feud. Um, And it's a moment we never knew we were (laughs) waiting for. (laughs) I really did not expect this. But honestly, I think when it comes to Kanye, you can never really truly anticipate anything. Can you talk me through Family Feud? Briefly? Uh, Oh, God. Like what the show is about? It's like, I feel like it's two families and they... They are on different teams, and I mean, I feel like the the it's title is the, it's two families, and they fight against each other. Is that um, like a prize? Not fight. It's like yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Oh, I don't know. I think so. It's like they answer questions. The smartest family wins, right. and it's like I feel like this is the show where they do like it's like really good for people. The presenter in uh, America is like really good at making people say awkward things, and he's like, "Oh!" and makes a lot of eye contact with the um, like the camera, and is like, "Oh!" It's like, but in terms of Caitlin, the Jenners versus the um, 
versus the West. I don't know what their com like their general knowledge is like. So I kind of I really just don't imagine that they have good. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. I don't know. They're um, pretty successful business people. Well, exactly. Well, according to um, Kim. Uh, it's going to be Kim and Kanye and three of Kanye's cousins uh, who will be playing against the Kardashian-Jenner clan, including Chris, her mother MJ, Chloe, and Kendall. And so Steve, Steve Harvey is the guy that I was like saying is like the host, um, and he's going to be hosting this one. Uh, I feel like Kanye's cousins might end up being like road scholars or something, <laughs> and he'll just like throw a curveball there. But who knows? Maybe Kendall and Chloe have really good general knowledge or just like I don't think they went to school I think they were homeschooled so maybe I they guess. have a lot of like really important trivia knowledge yeah in case. well anyway my money's on the west I don't know about you can I be both I don't know well I guess so that's very diplomatic <laughs> of you <laughs> I, want I do them both well I mean yeah I can pick a team if you want like I know the Kardashians I feel like are very just important for the for the mo for the you know excitement value I feel like you should probably go for the Jenners okay fine um, but in other news, Barbara Streisand has explained to Variety magazine in a recent interview why she's why she made the harrowing decision to clone her dog. In her interview in Variety, uh, Streisand revealed that the two that two of her three Cotton de Tullia dogs were clones. Specifically, the magazine reported that the dogs Miss Violet and Miss Scarlet have been cloned from cells taken from the mouth and stomach of Miss Streisand's late dog Samantha, who was 14 when she died last year. So Miss Violet and Miss Scarlet have different personalities, Miss Streisand told Variety magazine. I'm waiting for them to get older so I can see if they have their brown eyes and her, her brown eyes and her seriousness. Streisand's third dog, Miss Fanny, is a distant cousin of Samantha's, the magazine said. Wow. And for $50,000, you can also claim your, claim, claim, clone your dog, which is pretty terrifying. <laughs> but that's the world that we live in. And very important feminist news. Yeah, I, I don't really know how I thought that that could be <laughs> skewed as time. It's just really weird. I just thought it was weird. It's just news. It's pop culture it's news. news. Um, and lastly, we talk about a lot about whitewashing in um, in Hollywood because they seem to be obsessed with casting white characters uh, in the roles of characters of color, and it just like happens so often and these films keep getting green-lighted. I think like Jared Leto is playing a Yakuza boss in a film that's coming out this week. So Yeah, Hollywood execs like can't seem to get their shit together, but Hollywood darling and very cool actress <laughs> Amanda Sternberg has demonstrated that there are some smart, tuned-in people in cinema. Yeah, so in a conversation as a part of the um, TIFF Next Wave Festival um, that happened in late February, the 19-year-old actress um, revealed that she was pretty close to having a role in the blockbuster Marvel hit Black Panther, but backed out of the opportunity because she feel, she didn't feel like it was right to be part of it. Um, and obviously there's like a relatively big conversation happening about um, colorism in Hollywood. Uh, because of this, um, because of the trend of um, the majority of roles of black women going to light-skinned women um, and so after consulting with people she trusted in her industry and outside of her industry um, and thinking a lot about the um, the decision uh, she said she uh, made the statement that there are spaces that I shouldn't take up it's a pretty mature decision to make for any actress let alone a 19 year old considering Black Panther is like the biggest grossing film this year yeah exactly and I think that 
I mean, if you're an actress and there's something that big comes along, like it's it's so massive. Yeah, it's huge. So I feel like if someone wanted to cast me in Black Panther, I'd be in it because it's just <laughs> like the coolest. Everyone's obsessed with it, and she would have made so much money. So to make that kind of um, decision and to do that kind of consultation as well, I think yeah. is like really really good. But she went to prom with Jaden Smith, I think. So she's like she's a pretty cool lady. <laughs> um, Stick around because up next we're going to bring you thoughts that count. Uh, Whether it's your body language or choosing a language to avoid coming across as threatening or taking on the personal problems of your workmates, how does emotional labour play out in your place of work? I'm trying to think of like another word for workplace and I came up with place of work. (laughs) Very your job. Very wise. Um, Let us know 0409 945 945. Right now this is a Breeders with Nervous Mary from their new album that just came out called All Nerve. listening to Agenda on FBI Radio and it's now time for Thoughts That Count where we're asking you what you think about gendered emotional labour in the workplace. So whether it's uh, through body language, choosing language to avoid coming across as threatening or taking on the personal problems of your workmates, how does emotional labour play out in your job? Let us know on 0409 945 945. 
So we just had a quick Google of the term emotional labor. I feel like we talk about it all the time. <laughs> and then like as we had 20 seconds uh, to come back on air, I was like, wait, what? what is emotional labor? Because I feel like people talk about it all the time. And it's, some people use it as shorthand for like just not being a dickhead, I think. Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, I do all this emotional labor. It's like, no, you do have to be nice to people. Can you read me out the, the Wikipedia definition that you just came this across? Is really, this is why <laughs> we get texts being like, you're not real journalists. <laughs> emotional labor is the process of managing feelings and expressions uh, to fulfill the emotional requirements of a job. More specifically, workers are expected to regulate their emotions during interactions with customers, co-workers and superiors. Thank you. And I feel like on the one hand, particularly female identifying people are asked in their workplace, on a kind of subconscious level, they're asked to be super pleasant. And then everyone has this experience where on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who just have no holds barred, do not yeah. care. And they'll be like, why? Are you stupid? Why? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like, I feel like there's emotional labor that's asked of some people that is too much. And on the other hand, it's just like, just be pleasant to yeah, people. Yeah, well, that's so like the context for this question actually came out of an argument that I had in one of my workplaces a few weeks back. So like without going into details, it was a pretty big blow up and it was like really emotionally charged and it was also resolved very quickly. But since then, that person and myself have had like very short and brief interactions where we speak only about the work that we need to get done. And I've noticed that it's taken a huge amount of stress out of my work life with that particular interaction. So now we're obviously not friends. <laughs> we're, we're like all business all the time. And I know that I'm verging pretty dangerously on some like lean in fem- feminism kind of stuff by saying this, but taking the emotional labor out of that interaction has actually been a really big relief. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that's what we're talking about. It's a tricky line to kind of walk because it does help once you cut that stuff out. And like sometimes I've had the same experience where I work with like quite rude people and then, or like we'll be emailing each other and it will get pretty like, thank you further to my first email that do you know that? And (laughs) you're like, oh, actually get it done like quite quickly. And then in other times you like, will give someone a call after like getting into very kind of terse emailing and, you're really nice to them and they're like oh cool we can resolve this this is all good yeah so it's yeah. well it's a tricky one because like how do you be clear and communicative but also be emotionally intelligent and sensitive because I think a lot of the time a lot of the sexism in the arts that we talk about mm. does come from a lack of emotional intelligence as well so it's kind of I yeah know, the difference between emotional labor and emotional intelligence I think are pretty vast and it does oh true yeah yeah and it gets tough where everyone has like varying ways of communicating and being mm. receptive to that communication as well yeah, there's an article that we've been reading this week by Adia Harvey Wingfield that was published in The Atlantic uh, a couple of years ago called How Service with a Smile Takes a Toll on Women. And so in the article, Wingfield discusses sociologist Ali Hochschild's book called Managed Heart, which describes how the transition from manufacturing-based economy to a service-based economy has brought on the commodification of emotions. So Hochschild's argument is that in service jobs, works do not produce tangible commodities like they did in manufacturing positions. So rather, they're required to provide good service. And I feel like this is definitely a thing in America because I was like a waitress in America and people were like, you are a deeply unpleasant woman. And I was like, no, I'm just like giving you the food that you ordered in a timely manner and it's like edible. I'm not going to, like, That's be your friend. That's why I'm an awful waitress as well. Yeah. But I feel like in Australia it's fine. And also I think it has to do with, like, well, not that's a paying tipping, for tips yeah. thing. But it's like, 
I always, I'm like, oh, please, lady, just leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to eat my food. Um, So, yeah, people are required to provide good service. And the the ways that this phrase becomes defined and mandated means that organizations expect workers to create and sell emotional states in themselves and in others. Uh, This introduces a host of questions like who owns emotions when organizations can require workers to feel happy, pleasant, congenial in order to earn their paycheck. Yeah, divergent emotional norms are significant because they can reproduce gendered inequalities as well. So in um, the book that this article is referencing, uh, it says that the fact that women are required to generate traditionally feminine emotions while men do the opposite. And I know like this is very gender binary as well, um, but maybe... Yeah, it kind of furthers the idea that certain occupations are gendered. So, for example, one kind of occupation that it references is being a flight attendant, which is seen to be a very natural job for female identifying people, given the expectations of nurturing that are like feminized and attached to that role. Mm. So like making customers feel nurtured, cared for and safe. Meanwhile, being a pilot or an air traffic controller may not seem as such an obvious fit for like an emotional laboured an emotionally laboured yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of um, a thing that I read a few years ago and I realised after I Googled it this morning that I've been like explaining it as a, a completely different thing. So it's called smile mask syndrome. And it's one of those things where I think I read half an article in like 2010 <laughs> and I was, it's called smile mask syndrome. And I've been telling people it's called false face syndrome, which is like a completely different thing. I mean, Um, you get the idea. Yeah, but it's also incorrect. It's true. (laughs) So what smile mask syndrome is, is a psychological disorder proposed by Professor Makoto Natsume um, of the Osaka Shoin Women's University, in which subjects developed a depression and physical illness as a result of prolonged unnatural smiling. So Natsume opposed the disorder after counselling students from the university in his practice and noticing that a number of students had spent so much time faking their smiles that they were unaware that they were smiling even while relating stressful or upsetting experiences to him and so he he attributes this to the great importance placed on smiling in the Japanese service industry particularly for young women but I think that's like true I've had that experience before like working in the service industry where you're just like smiling all the time and it's just like it it does something very strange to you like I I know that people are like oh if you smile then it will make you feel happier but I think that that's, that works for a certain extent. And then, like, if you're smiling through, like, deep stress or unhappiness, oh, then, like, yeah. you, you're just, like, I feel like you must be doing something quite damaging to your Oh, absolutely. I was, I was talking about this the other day with my friend Sophie um, about the worst job that we've ever had. And I was relating to her when I used to be a children's entertainer and a fairy. Please, please tell us about <laughs> that experience. Well, I mean, it was the most um, saddening time of my life mm. because you, you are required to be smiling and happy and make children's parties the best thing ever, sometimes on like five parties a day. So oh I would be gosh. like, you know, driving in my car, getting changed from fairy costume to like princess costume to ninja turtle or whatever and then I'd be on the way home just so sick of being the happiest you know like well dads are like totally there's like oh it's the worst and I'd be yeah like stripping off my fairy costume in my car smoking cigarettes like like, so angry that is such a strong Uh, it was it was a really dark time of my life anyway we'd like to hear from you about how you experience emotional labor in your workplace text us 0409 945 945 are there any things that you do to kind of regulate emotional labor like do you delete Mm. just or sorry from your I mean that's a pretty standard example but Mm. 
Do you alter the way that you email people? Do you have any strategies for dealing with emotional labor? Text us 0409 945 945. Um, stick around for our interview with CN Lester for the Translate Me panel happening at Sydney Opera House um, tomorrow, which is ahead of International Women's Day next week. We'll hear from CN Lester right after this track from K Dash called Queen of This Shit. Uh, big language warning on this one. <laughs> also, language warning on the title. <laughs> <laughs> Click, click, pal, where your guns at? Shit, yeah, really had to do it, bitch, bump that. I'm the queen of the shit, bitch, fuck that. Bitch, I'm on top now, where your funds at? Click, click, pal, where your guns at? Shit, yeah, really had to do it, bitch, bump that. I'm the queen of the shit, bitch, fuck that. Bitch, I'm on top now, where your funds at? Click, click, pal, where your guns at? Shit, yeah, really had to do it, bitch, bump that. I'm the queen of the shit, bitch, fuck that. Bitch, I'm on top now, where your funds at? Click, click, pal, where your guns at? Shit, yeah, really had to do it, bitch, bump that. I'm the queen of the shit, bitch, fuck that. Export to the grade. Grew up in the slums, now I'm here for the rage. Black girl, bitch, you never turn the page. I'm a fucking beast, better keep me in the cage. Just a bum bitch, fuck a nigga just to make chips. I'm a rock star, wanna pick. Wanna talk slick, send to the pin, call a pick. Leave her with a patch on her eyelash, she bitch. Where your funds at? Click, click, where your guns at? She got really had it, bitch, bump that. I'm the queen of the shit, bitch, fuck that. Bitch, I'm on top now. Where your funds at? Click, click, where your guns at? She got really had it, bitch, bump that. I'm the Fuck that. Out in London with my London guy, looking hella fancy in my London ride, eating tasty crepes. You know what's good? Quay dash a problem, and you know I'm hood. I don't need no friends, I don't need no man, but I love them hits cause they on my fans. Wanna order grab for you, wanna follow? Got a heavy flow that these hoes could swallow. You don't want no beef, better keep it cute cause Quay dash taking all your loot. It's a fucking promise, it's a fucking deal. I don't give no fuck cause they know I'm real. I don't give no fuck cause they know I'm real. I don't give no fuck cause they know I'm real. I don't give no fuck. Cause they know I'm real, cause they know I'm real, cause they know Bitch, I'm on top now, where your funds at? Click, click, where your guns at? Shit, yeah, really had it, bitch, bump that I'm the queen of the shit, bitch, fuck that Bitch, I'm on top now, where your funds at? Click, click, where your guns at? Shit, yeah, really had it, bitch, bump that I'm the queen of the shit, bitch, fuck that To the grave listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. We're joined now by C.N. Lester, who is a classical and alternative singer-songwriter, um, also a writer and an LGBTQI and transgender rights activist. So just a small suite of, <laughs> <laughs> suite of things. <laughs> so your book, Trans Like Me, A Journey for All of Us, walks readers through the basics of living uh, as a trans person. And alongside personal stories, you unpick pronouns, binaries, and Caitlyn Jenner. Among yeah, you so. always have to unpick Caitlyn Jenner. Like, <laughs> you, you might not Still, want to. People <laughs> still ask yeah right so yeah you know 
So hopefully provide an answer, which then means I don't have to answer it ever yeah. again. <laughs> you have a little, like, yeah, Caitlyn Jenner package prepared. So That's the, the one. <laughs> That's the one, yeah. exactly. What was your process like in writing the book? So, like, was it a conscious decision that you made to educate non-trans communities? Because it is a very um, informative and kind of uh, gives a lot of context mm. to a lot of different things. I mean, I think one of the things that sort of starting off with with my agent and with publishers and and just sort of my readers from my blog is that there's a lot of academic stuff out there and then there's a lot of really pop stuff out there but we wanted to do something which had the academic background but you could still read it on a train you could still read it on the bus and I have been reading it on the bus (laughs) exactly (laughs) well we figured a collection of essays you can pick it up you can put it down and then we thought what are the main misconceptions about being trans what are the main myths and legends effectively and could we just do a, a chapter on every single one of them and break it down and say well this is actually what's happening um so yeah it was definitely a conscious decision to educate because i I work as a trans educator i I, you know go out and do outreach in schools and companies and organizations and people really want to know what the real deal is so i hoped having something i could say hey read this (laughs) it would be helpful it is super helpful it kind of it the style of reading it really reminds me or kind of makes me feel similar to reading like roxane gay or something or you know like it is a very it does seem like it's it's very it has a lot of research and a lot of kind of context but also is a very personal mm. experience and story thank you well she's a huge inspiration yeah. so you know <laughs> to everyone so yes thank you and you're also speaking on a panel tomorrow addressing the ways that trans narratives are often left out of mainstream feminism and maybe when they're included they're not included in a way that is particularly helpful mm. um and i was just wondering where I guess tomorrow, we're not days away, tomorrow is the Oscars um, and kind of cis, white, hetero women are at the centre of the Me Too conversation and actors like Monroe Bergdorf and Jerry Jones have spoken about the extent to which trans women and femmes bear the brunt of sexual assault and harassment mm. for both men and from both men and women, sorry, and society at large. So in terms of like in a long-term sense, I was wondering what you thought about the Me Too movement and whether it serves trans folks in a meaningful way uh, or is it just another kind of example of the way feminism marginalises trans I think there can definitely be the the possibility for it serving trans people, but Mm. I think that needs to be... It it can't do that without being aware of the problems inherent. And, yeah, Munro Bergdorf is someone... If if anyone listening has not checked out her work, like, check it out. It's amazing. Um, And it's definitely fair to point out when we look at not just like the the research data but when we look at our stories that we tell each other in our communities our personal experiences uh trans people particularly trans femmes and and trans women particularly trans women of color and trans femmes of color are bearing violence not just from men but often from women as well like so many trans women i know have been attacked in toilets by by cis women um speaking as someone who's like genderqueer the sort of the worst violence I've experienced was from a cis woman attacking me and I know several trans men actually who have been sexually assaulted by their cis female partners so I think gendered violence is gendered but we should be really careful about realizing it's not like this one-way street cis men do sort of I'm afraid to say you know they they are behind the majority of the violence but it's not all of the violence and gendered hierarchies can work in ways which are not just uh, so the simple way that we, we get shown in the mainstream media. Mm. Yeah, speaking of the mainstream media, um, in your book you kind of talk a lot about <laughs> about, <laughs> yes. about the way that the media reports <clears throat> on trans people and kind of <coughs> often identifies 
trans people um, when it has no relevance mm-hmm. to the story that they're involved in um, or like asking really invasive questions and like personal questions that you wouldn't ask in any other um, context. And I was wondering, do you have any positive examples of when the media have done a good job or have treated um, trans issues with thoughtfulness and consideration? Yeah, I mean, I do actually. And um, I would say a couple of days ago, I did a, uh, an interview with an SBS reporter and that was fantastic. We had a great time. We talked for an hour and a half and she was fascinating and, and it was just a, a really great she came sort of wanting to talk and wanting to contribute rather than wanting to box someone in so any good experience that I've had with the media has been from someone who wants to explore the issues and so often you get invited to debate or explore the issues and they don't want to explore anything they just want to shout at you <laughs> and then hope that maybe you'll get angry or that you'll get upset um, so I think that would be always be you know if if you if you want to approach trans media in a progressive way rather than a regressive way, it has to be genuinely with a desire to hear what someone has to say. Which maybe can be applicable to most media. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, right? this, I think always worth remembering. You know, trans people come from every single background yeah. of of human society. You know, we are everywhere, and so much of the trans experience is more broadly just about being marginalized and being shut out and what it means instead to to be empathetic, to be compassionate and to put someone who has been oppressed, say instead, actually, you have the authority and the agency to talk about your own life and your own experiences and we should listen to that. And in the way that you'd like to talk about them too. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, that's the number one thing with the media is they want to, you know, it's can we have gory before and after shots? And you think there's no before and after in Mm. my life. There's just my life. And no, I don't have any gory pictures of myself. And what a weird question. (laughs) And no, I don't want to talk about my genitals because that's really private. And yeah, it's. Um, I don't think they would enjoy having the same questions asked about them. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, like turning it back. How about we talk about your genitals? Like, yeah. It is just yeah, such a absolutely. bizarre thing of like, yeah. You mentioned actually an example in your book about how you wouldn't ask a pregnant lady or a woman who had a child mm-hmm. at a, at a, or a person who had a child at a cafe, you wouldn't ask them what that process was like and what that medical procedure was like. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't kind of ask an invasive question about their body. So why apply mm-hmm. that to anyone? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that some people would ask that, but you know, I, I think the point I was trying to make was you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, exactly. And you know, again, that's the same, you know, I remember I went and did a gig uh, a couple of sort of years ago in Bristol and I was sort of setting up in the bar and one of the audience members just came up to me and it was just really insistent, like, but what's in your pants? What's in your oh. pants? What's in your pants? And and she thought she was being really friendly. And it was just this very bizarre, it's like, I've come here to do a gig. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So you are you are a musician yes. um, uh, that Laurie Penny, uh, Laura, Laurie Penny described as a writer for our times, a moving, learned and essential voice at the razor edge of gender politics, which I think is a pretty nice. It's um, It makes me blush and look at my face. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to get better about having compliments. But yeah, it's, uh, well, it's would special. you be able to um, describe what your music is like in your songwriting? Yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of, I guess, two broad different types of music making. So it's my... Um, so sort of like day career and night career. So by day, I do a lot of academic research into feminist music making and women composers and how ideas of gender sort of really affect how we listen and what we hear. Um, and then I also sing very early opera and then sort of the contemporary opera, you know, the really one-on-one stuff where you're making up as you go along and you're doing all kinds of weird things. It's really fun and everyone <laughs> should go along at least once to that kind of thing. And then by night, I've been working as a singer-songwriter for quite a number of years now and just me and my piano and I write sad songs 
Some of them are happy as well. A lot of them are sad. <laughs> um, and I think they just kind of, they kind of mesh into each other sometimes. And I don't know, music is, music is magic. I just love it. It's a real privilege. What, what made you get into music? Like, how was that? Um, I don't know. I think, you know, neither one of my parents is a musician and I, but they played me a lot of music and, you know, they were huge David Bowie fans and big Lou Reed fans. So it was like, you know, Bowie and Reed and Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Joan Armatrading and Roberta Flack and uh, Tracy Chapman. Those were the big ones when I was growing up. And so like being a singer songwriter, that seemed to be just like what adults did. That Mm. was really cool. And then I heard classical music and I got madly into that and I started piano when I was six years old and I think there was a little bit of a rebellion against my parents like they were like music is rock and roll or or like sad core stuff and I was there going but music could also be opera Um, your parents were like no go to your room yeah a little bit get the electric guitar (laughs) I think at one point my father was like why do you have to play such an uncool instrument and I think the first time he came and saw me do a rock gig when I was like 20 he was like I told you I knew it knew it would happen Um, yeah it just I don't know. It, it was just it, everything clicked. It was everything lined up in my brain. It was like, this is how I ought to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just so lucky to to have the opportunity to pursue that because I actually think a lot of kids have that feeling. And then I don't know what the situation is like in Australia. In the UK, we've been cutting funding for music programs in school. And you have all these incredibly talented kids who could be out there making music are just being denied that opportunity. Well, interestingly, um, music is only taught in the curriculum in Queensland. It's not It's Whoa. not a part of the curriculum in New South Wales. As like, so I, I grew up in Queensland and I learned mm-hmm. violin for like eight years. Yeah. <laughs> so did I. I no idea why I played with so And long. then I, I kind of became a teenager and decided it wasn't cool anymore. And then mm. like way later into my 20s, I heard the Dirty Three and was like, oh, I <laughs> <laughs> really should have stuck with the violin. I probably um, would have been there. Oh, I definitely would have been in the Dirty Three if I'd I'd stuck to violin. Um, So speaking of your musical influence and all of those um, amazing people that you were kind of influenced by, we might take a track now. Um, It's a cover of uh, Leonard Cohen's song, I'm Your Man. Yeah. Let's, Let's take a listen to it. Take 
Such a beautiful cover by C.N. Lester of Leonard Cohen's 1988 song, I'm Your Man. Um, we were also just discussing uh, off air the image that's um, the album artwork or the kind of song artwork mm. um, and the photo shoot that you did that was... Yeah, it was amazing. It was an underwater photo shoot. And I'm terrible at having my photo taken. Just like I freeze up and I get <clears throat> panicky and I just, you know, I don't like it in any way, shape or form. And it's amazing what being chucked in a swimming pool with all your clothes on, suddenly you're just focusing on being in the water and <laughs> you Not get choking these, or anything. Yeah, you get these beautiful photographs out of it because it's kind of impossible to think about the camera any longer. You're trying to think about you know, <laughs> which way up am I yeah. and where am I actually looking and I, oh my god I have water in my eyes. Yeah. And it, you look really serene. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. it's very cool. Also the weightlessness I could imagine would be a really oh. nice freeing kind of exactly that's my thing about images I never know where to put my hands and my body feels weird and then yesterday I was like getting my photo taken and I just had this really weird hand I was like oh god this is gonna look so stupid but yeah it's It's good to have something to do with your hands you start singing sort of classical music and you've got to avoid like 
I'm sure everyone's seen that kind of like opera diva thing where the arms go up and the arms go down and the arms go up and the uh, arms go yeah. down. And Is that what you do? No, you have to be trained to keep them completely loose at your side and it's really hard. So yeah. often like if you get tins of food from the kitchen and just hold them in your hands and just like but it takes years to retrain out of that sensation that you should be doing something mm. yeah um, wow yeah it's really weird Interesting. you watch small kids singing they're just all over the yeah. place little octopuses mm. <laughs> very sweet it's the plural for octopus octopi o- octopodes <laughs> o- octopuses no it's it's like Greek, not Latin, I think. Oh, I don't know. I'm just talking. It's like the fourth time where I'm like, I'm pretty sure. And then I Google it and I'm like, nope. We, I I feel bad because we actually are going to ask you about Caitlyn Jenner because of the... (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Um, But we were wondering, you wrote an article a year after the very like public Mm. um, transition and about kind of... It was one of those things where people were comfortable with that or celebrating that transition because it was very like private. There was a lot of she had obviously had huge disposable income mm. that was kind of made it very palatable, very like. palatable because of her proximity to like white's femininity. Mm. Um, and that was kind of where we were at, I feel like. And then a year later, that's still where we were at. But I was wondering if since then you thought that it had. I think it it's really um a fantastic example of the differences between what trans people are talking about in our media spaces and our community spaces and what cis people are talking about so i mean autostraddle did this amazing article when she came out sort of saying like we didn't even want to write this but we had to write this because we were being asked so many times and i think that's kind of what it felt like there are these um questions that you really want to talk about and and in the uk certainly like trans suicide is a really big one lack of access to healthcare, um the difficulties of like daily violence on the bus or in school um and then you you do all these pitches on these stories and you have editors write back to you saying oh it's just not interesting and then suddenly you get all the same emails through going would you write a piece about caitlin jenner and what that means for you personally and you think i don't even know her yeah the thing it means personally for me is that we're talking about her when when we should be talking about you know kids who can't even survive the school day or elderly trans people who have no family to help them because their family just like abandoned them um and i think that maybe that is the point of the whole caitlin jenner story for me is it really shows how we get trapped in this idea that trans people are the transition moment mm. and the transition moment should be really glamorous and it should be really kind of like oh my god can you believe it kind of thing mm. um and that's not the majority of trans people's lives like a lot of us um you know it's a transition gradually or it's something that happened years ago or you know transition can mean so many different things and then it's actually the day-to-day living and the day-to-day pressures and i think it really felt like the final nail in the coffin for me when she was so supportive of donald trump and you just thought oh come on (laughs) you know (laughs) just come on Mm. and um but again it's you know, she said it was harder to come out as a Republican than, than to come out as a trans woman. Oh and that's what money will do for you. Mm. And, you know, I say this as someone who is sort of, you know, I'm not rich by any means, but I'm very economically privileged. And I think that's something we have to keep talking about in trans spaces, that currently being access, having access to healthcare, you know, having access to a taxi to get home at night mm. can make such a crucial difference. Um, and it's money. So I guess that's my thing with Caitlyn Jenner. I think if she really... Uh, cared about the trans community, she would just give a huge chunk of money to <laughs> um, charities, and maybe she is, and if she is good on her, but like, I would love to see a little bit more awareness from her that she can change the world 
and she can do that not through magazine covers so much as mm. she could by putting her money where her mouth is. Yeah, it's a huge platform. It to is. Have. It's <laughs> enormous, and you know, and that's hard. It's really hard for anyone to be sort of pushed into that. I think I'm just. Again, I get frustrated when she makes pronouncements like that, which just aren't true and mm. aren't true for the majority of people. And you think of the thousands and thousands of people who never get heard, and then she gets heard. And yeah. In terms of the conversations that you're having in your communities, is that is that pretty much are we are are you where you were three or four years ago, or do you feel like there is a little bit more of a desire within media to hear those stories? I or? think there's been a little bit of a shift. Um, the UK media is in an interesting moment. Uh, it's it's having a little it's having a little backlash moment, mm-hmm. uh, and. It's very frustrating because there's a lot of incredible stuff coming out. Um, so many artists coming out, so many writers and thinkers, um, so many bits of like crucial advocacy that need attention. And right now there's a kind of media campaign smearing a lot of public trans people. So Munro Bergdorf, who we were talking about earlier, you know, she had to go through this terrible character assassination through the UK press. Um, and just a lot of lies being repeated by people with with sort of large platforms. It's something I talk a lot about in the book. It's often that when the media talks about trans people, they're not talking about trans people, they're just talking about their own ideas Mm -hmm. and they reference each other over and over again. And by the time they get from point A to point B, point B is so far away from any trans people. It's just Mm -hmm. like, uh, what is going on here? So I, I think the level of sophistication in trans communities and communities plural, like so many different types of us and different intersections of us, um, they're just so, they're so much more intense and so much more interesting. And I think the kind of interesting um, where actually we could be building bridges between different experiences if we were having those conversations in a larger way, but we're not, we're still stuck doing that. Oh, you know, <laughs> this really reductive way of talking about trans mm. people. Yeah, yeah, well, it's also part of the conversation of like nothing about us without us, right? Mm-hmm. Like part Completely. of the, like people reporting on something that they actually have no proximity to at all or no Mm. personal experience of that becomes really or even just like I feel like maybe this is uh it happens in Australian media media as well where it's just like a little bit of effort like you could just talk to one person Mm. and they're like no we'll just run with it (laughs) we'll just (laughs) just say it yeah I mean we are talking about ancient Egypt being (laughs) today no I think that's a really good example of it it's not something that happened like a decade ago like trans people Mm. were just like invented 10 years ago it's like we were talking about it earlier in the show about like queerness in ancient Egypt and mm. how it was like not deviant or anything like that. And it was like celebrated and um, yeah. Um, Sian Lester, thank you so much for coming in thank to you. chat to us today on Agenda. Uh, you will be speaking tomorrow on the I will Trans be. Like Me panel. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. At All About Women mm-hmm. Festival. Yep, it's four of us and we are going to be talking about basically, I think, trans feminisms, which are awesome, and how more mainstream feminist movements can just include people who've experienced misogyny in lots of different ways and how we can work together to smash the patriarchy, basically. Sounds very good. <laughs> Who else is on the panel? Uh, that would be Eddie Ayers and Jordan. I can't now 
I'm so jet-lagged. Brescopolis? Brescopolis? That's the one. And um, Sally Goldner is going to be our chair. And yeah, it should be really, really good. Yeah, it sounds like a great conversation Mm. to have. Um, And I think there are tickets still available Mm -hmm. to the... to, I'm so. pretty sure. I, so. I really should have checked yeah. that before. We're I like journalists don't fact check anything. <laughs> <laughs> also, you may or may not be able to get to it, but we'll pop a link up to our show page um, on Agenda on FBI Radio. And to celebrate Cher being in Sydney for the 40th anniversary of Mardi Gras, uh, we're going to leave you with this cover of Believe by Swedish oddball house musician Your Planet Is Next. Um, and this one goes out to Georgia Quinn, who showed me this track uh, during a very stressful working time and who is very good at navigating emotional intelligence in a workplace. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. Oh, what a wonderful evening. But I got one question for you. After love, after